0: Hello and welcome to the Antifada where unrest is best. I'm Jamie Peck.
1: I am Sean KB. And I'm AP Andy.
0: And we are here with a very special guest who I'm gonna introduce in a minute. But uh, how was everyone's Halloween, guys?
1: I saw Rocky Erickson. (sighs) Oh my God. Oh, you teased that on that last episode.
0: Not only did I not see Rocky Erickson, I did not see the bands that I actually bought tickets to see because I was too fucking tired. I just stayed the fuck home.
2: And even if you did see the band that you wanted to see, Christian Death, (laughs) you would not have seen Christian Death.
0: Yeah, I know. I mean, okay, I will admit to not knowing anything about Christian Death since, like, the 80s. I just, I saw it on a show headline, and I was like, fuck it, yeah, I want to do that. But uh, I like, I mean, I like all the bands that were opening for Christian Death, too. Shout out to Pawns. Uh, oh, Pons is Blue great. Anxiety. Pons played one of my Halloween parties, oh, and yeah. they were awesome. Can
1: I ask a question real quick? Also not knowing anything about Christian death. Um, did they do like a Misfits thing where there was like the Misfits, but then it like went on and they lost Danzig and it became lamer and lamer? Or they just... Oh, of- it's way lamer. There's no original members. Uh, oh, I thought uh, there was
0: one at least. They
1: don't... Nope.
2: I don't Gosh. think so. Oh, shit. They don't sound the same, and they're like really bottom-of-the-barrel hot topic mm. like oh. evanescence got
1: oh that's jamie that's right in jamie's wheelhouse
2: they're like, yeah, they're like looking like up at I evanescence like,
0: <laughs> uh, i'll take it I, I mean honestly i'll listen to anything that sounds like uh something i would have listened to when and i was 18 just, probably t- okay.
2: they just tore the world uh disappointing goss and like Every continent.
0: Wow. Well, uh,
1: Making them even sadder. Maybe
0: I should be glad that I was too tired to go. I and like, Okay. I partied pretty hard on Halloween weekend because I knew this was probably going to happen.
1: We had a good time at that party. We stayed out we did. quite late.
0: I uh, even managed to coerce Sean into coming out with me for a night and doing a couples costume, which Mm -hmm. is like not always given that he's gonna wanna do that.
1: Now check it out, you know, it's sort of this thing where you have this enemy, you have this adversary and you think so much about them. It's like you stare into the abyss and then it stares back at you we've spent so much time on the musk beat on this show that just there was something internally that just came up inside of me and i turned into the rocket man himself i was elon musk for halloween and jamie was
0: i was grimes clearly Hell yeah i mean i basically dressed like grimes already so it really wasn't that hard of a costume to make Um, I also believe very strongly that we should all uh, face down the evil versions of
1: ourselves. (laughs) That's true. So,
0: like, in order to counteract what Grimes is doing in the world, perhaps it was necessary for me to become Grimes.
1: Well... Becoming Elon Musk, uh, it seemed easy at first. I just put on a weird Rocket Man helmet and wrote SpaceX on something. But then I started to make really weird, awkward pauses, and I couldn't make eye contacts with anybody. And I just talked a lot about magnets, which I think kind of ruined the party. I really kind of ca- came into the character. But I got out of it real fast.
0: You were, you were great, babe. Thanks, you, you too. You were great. Um, I'm just happy that I got to have my Elon Musk with me for at least one night. And then, you know what, the second night... I really did not fucking feel like going out at all. But I was like, dude, it's it's Halloween weekend. This is a very important holiday for me. I'm going to go out at least one more night. And people still got that. I was Tesla Grimes because I uh, made myself like the necklace and everything. I, I think I did a pretty good approximation. But then when Halloween itself rolled around, fuck, man, it's a hard time of year to be a goth socialist podcaster, as our friend Jake Flores noted on his show, too. I think I'm still a little bit tired and just like sad. I'm sad that it's over, but on the upside, there are only 361 days until next Halloween. So you can bet I will start planning that soon.
1: It is right around the corner. So I'd like to ask a question that we always ask every single one of our guests, but this time I'm going to ask it to somebody else. AP Andy, how pure is your hate today?
2: I don't know. We, I don't know if I like answering this question because I don't really like the, the hate thing. <laughs> oh
0: Leave God. that in. <laughs> Do you like anything about this podcast? Like, what are you doing here?
1: <laughs> There's a lot of things I don't like about the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so right, you keep, so that's why we keep you around. <laughs> it keeps us uh, honest. We didn't, we didn't want to ask anybody else, so we asked you. But you know what? You You were very honest. I'm uh, not a uh, hater. I'm a lover.
0: Your uh, hate for this question is clearly quite pure.
1: I am very critical. I don't think that
2: makes me hate things. I like to, you know, dialectically <laughs> oh understand uh, the nature of things.
1: Critical support for a yeah. uh, running bit on our show.
0: Dialect my balls. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Moving right along. Working blue folks. Working <laughs> blue. Yeah. Um, we also have some spicy takes on the midterm elections, which uh, will have happened already by the time this episode comes out. Uh, and I guess I guess we feel the need to acknowledge that they are happening or have happened already for some stupid fucking reason. So stay tuned for that, folks, after our main conversation.
1: As we always say, fuck bourgeois politics. But, you know, we'll throw that a bone every once in a while.
0: Yep, the majority report is turning us all into anarcho-liberals. It's a very weird synthesis.
1: <laughs> it's li- that's literally happening to me, I think. <laughs> oh, God, no. Oh, get oh, the cedar God. out of your head. Kill the cedar in Uncle your head. Uncle
0: Sam Cedar. <laughs> he's getting in- he gets in your head. He really does. He's like, I mean, among other things, he's uh, he's so smart and he's so sneaky. Like He has pulled me into this <laughs> fucking feud he has with Jimmy Dore without even really having to say or do much. And I just find myself like saying things about Jimmy Dore that I don't even like, I don't care at all. But like, it's like I'm calling him an idiot so Sam doesn't have to. Well,
1: saying that your boss is both smart and sneaky as you rubbed your hands together <laughs> in that way actually is a good segue to introducing oh my our God. guest. I'm uh, allowed to. As say you it. triple parentheses your boss.
0: Oh, that is, that is not what I meant by that, but thank you. Nobody for... here would
1: ever make an anti-Semitic
0: allusion
2: about Sam Cedar. <laughs> thank That's you. never been done and never will be done. That
0: has never been, certainly not in this room. Oh, no, no. Oh, man. Uh, so shall I, or you want to introduce Mandy? Andy?
2: Uh, sure. We've got, through our friends at Commune Magazine, we have an exclusive interview with the author of, I think it's safe to say, their most viral article to date three months inside the alt-right um, about one person infiltrating the alt-right and making a very sort of honest take of, of what he saw there. Um, and I, no one really knows who this guy is, so I Googled his name. He appears to be a Hollywood producer of, of some repute. <laughs> I'm not sure how he was able to get past the Nazis uh, with that career, but he he did it, and we're gonna ask him how he did it. We have Jay Firestone here. Welcome, Jay.
1: How's it going?
0: Oh, and before we go any further, I also want to give a shout out to Commune Magazine. They're super awesome. If you like the things you read in there, you could get a membership. I think they they have a few options. I think some of them come with a tote bag. Some of them come with like a snazzy sweatshirt. So check it out. Also, uh, there's no good place to put this. So I'm just going to say it right now. Our show relies on your support. If you like what you hear and want to help us keep on making more of it as well as um get access to some patrons only bonus episodes and our awesome discord community you can go to patreon.com/theantifada and sign up there and uh give give us some money if you want to or not like you know whatever you want to do
2: so your piece about infiltrating the alt right in new york uh including the daily stormer book club the right stuff's pool party The Proud Boys and even the New York Forum has gone totally viral at this point. Um, How did you do it? How did you infiltrate them and what were you trying to achieve?
3: Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. And I really appreciate Commune Magazine putting this story out. I hope that in giving an account uh, behind the scenes of my story, um, I could encourage other people to undertake this kind of research uh, because it's easier than it might seem. It's obviously a little bit dangerous but uh, it's certainly something that uh, you should consider if you're able to do it. So the project began uh, as I watched this totally bizarre political movement emerge, seemingly out of nowhere. Now, those who have written about the alt right uh, from a scholarly perspective or from their own experience identify its origins either in Gamergate or Chan culture. Uh, or a variety of, you know, misogynistic uh, internet communities. Uh, But I think we can all agree that the Trump movement and the rise rise of Donald Trump gave this coalition of different groups um, loosely organized around themes of misogyny, racism, uh, xenophobia, um, a real boost, and it brought them um, off the internet and into the streets. And I think that we saw specifically around uh, the, the Trump election and uh, in the, the street activity in the months following the Trump election, that the kind of folks who had um, hitherto uh, consigned themselves to, you know, tweeting uh, awful things at liberal journalists um, and playing sick jokes on total strangers, you know, um, were really moving out of that fantasy world uh, and and they were really attempting to, to bring it to reality. Uh, and so, you know, as a as a dedicated leftist i wanted to do everything i could to stop it and one thing that i noticed was um i was spending an increasing amount of time uh listening to the the trs podcasts reading the daily stormer uh following um all the different intellectual currents you know like the american renaissance um you know kevin mcdonald uh current you know all these 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 disparate uh traditions that were you know coming together uh Around uh, the Trump movement, and I didn't see um, a serious engagement with it uh, in the media, and I didn't see a lot of uh, the information and the the basic on-the-ground assessment that one could even take from listening to the podcasts uh, was not at all reflected in the way that these groups were covered. There's obviously some exceptions to that. Um, there's the anti-fascists um, in most of the cities where these groups were operating, uh, would provide, uh, invaluable information about who they were as individual people and what their groups were up to. But by the time it came, uh, for a journalist to write a story for mass consumption, they would effectively listen to, like, two hours of fascination and write some piece, I listened to a Nazi podcast for two hours and you'll never believe what they said. Um, and so there was just a real dearth of information. Uh, so... I, at some point, I came to the conclusion um, through listening to the Daily Show uh, that I could walk right into a room of these these guys and say what's up, and they, they wouldn't even bat an eye. They reminded me of the guys I went to high school with, you know, for better or worse, guys I've worked with my whole life, uh, and I basically took the I took a, the the wager, made the wager that um, this was this was something that I could contribute uh, to the movement.
0: So just a point of clarification. Did you embark on this originally as a journalistic project or was it um, some combination of things?
3: That's a really good question. Uh, Initially, I just wanted to find out who the people were in my city who wanted to murder me and all my friends. (laughs) Um, And I wanted to get a sense of uh, how they were organizing and what they were planning. I knew just by listening to the the show that Mike Enoch was in New York City. Uh, this was before he was doxxed, but it was pretty obvious, listening to it, that he was in, he was in the city, that, um, that Sven, Jesse Dunstan, was, uh, was nearby uh, and they would talk about their, their meetups and they would talk about all different groups and uh, I, wanted, I wanted to, s- to s- see what they were up to, get a, get a sense of who they were, learn as much about it as possible and pass that information along to the people who they were conspiring to murder.
1: Well, as somebody who does not want to take a helicopter ride, uh, you said something very interesting, which is that the way that these people spoke in their media and on their message boards, you know, kind of reminded you of people that you know in everyday life. So in the broadest sense, because there are a lot of different groups here, who are these people? What is their class background? um, And how did most of them come into this, I guess you could call it a subculture?
3: I'm glad you asked that because... The one thing that I regret about this article, which many people have been generous in reading and saying positive things about, uh, is the the lack of a clear class analysis. I think uh, what you need to understand is I was trying my best to uh, present these these groups and these individuals in a straight narrative form. I didn't want to lapse into the kind of uh, the million odd think pieces that have been written about the alt right in the last two years. Um, so I think I bent the stick a little bit too far away from having a class analysis. So the, real quick, as, as a lot of uh, deft readers have noticed, there are, there's a clear divide uh, in this world. There are, there are clearly middle class motherfuckers, like unabashedly, like Richard Spencer could be a character from uh, Black Reconstruction in America. He's like some southern plantation heir running around telling working class white people that they have more in common with him than they do with black people. Now, you also have some folks that we would identify as working class, uh, people who have nothing to sell but their labor, people who work with their hands, uh, people who do downwardly mobile uh, white-collar work. Uh, and I don't, you know, pretend to have some kind of scientific understanding of the interplay uh, between these two class fragments in the New York City all right, but the what I hope people take away from my piece is that these folks only become a problem when... A significant number of working-class white people see the world the way that they do. Now, the good news is, in a city like New York, um, a working-class white person is probably less amenable to these politics um, than somebody from an affluent p- position, because the chances are they live and work uh, with the the very people who these politics are conspiring to murder, um, and. Therefore, it becomes much more difficult to adopt this kind of dehumanizing rhetoric. However, uh, there, of course, that is not a magic bullet. And as we know, things can also go in the other direction.
0: You said that you showed up and they pretty much accepted you as one of them. Um, I'm curious to hear a little bit more about the process by which you gained their trust. Was it really just like an immediate, you're cool, you're one of us, you came to our thing, we're desperate for people? Was there like some kind of like, probation period when they were kind of feeling you out a little bit like how are they with info security like how, how'd you get in with them
3: i found a weak link some of these folks take security culture very seriously um, it's akin to a lot of anarchists uh, so the trick was to find the softest point of entry um, i identified that as the daily stormer meetup groups um, those are the folks who are they're kind of like the the dumb side of um of the scene. Um, it class composition wise, I would say, uh, at least, uh, culturally working class, uh, compared to the, the TRS folks who are just on a like white collar, um, kind of jippies Um, so I created an account on the Daily Stormer, uh, message board. Now listen closely if you're trying to do this yourself. Um, don't be a fucking idiot. Um, you know, these people are not as dumb as you might want to think they are. Um, in the course of the time that I was posting, uh, which was about three months before I even started uh, trying to meet people in real life, I saw so many uh, folks clear, who were clearly anti-fascists pop up. You know, no avatar. Um, and their first post is like, hey, fellow Nazis, where's the meetup? And it's everyone's just like, fuck you, you know. And actually, um, there was so much of that going on that in the, in the meetup section of the book club area of the message board, you really weren't even getting any serious answers from people. So what I did was I just posted generic Nazi shit, like, oh yeah, I also dislike Rihanna. It's this really nerdy message board, so you build up like, you've are the you got to the level of new fag, you've got to the level of super Pepe fan or whatever. And so then uh, after, about, after about two months, I wrote, I was like, so, some of you folks seem to be in New York. Uh, Who wants to, like, not even who wants to meet up. It was like, does anybody meet up in New York?
2: A quick question on this. Uh, You're talking about how some anti-fascists don't really know how to talk to these people. Um, Part of, you know, I think hanging out with these people is saying uh, the the 14 words. Not the the protect the white children thing, but just like all of the slurs and like uh, such that you're not allowed to say in left-wing circles. Was that difficult for
3: you? You know, I thought that it was going to be fun, uh, but it was actually really ugly. Um, you know, I I said the the n word as a kid, um, and you know, obviously that gets socialized out of you in our circles <laughs> real quick. Um, so I thought it was going to be fun, uh, but you know, I and I I was really bad at the Nazi talk actually, but. You know, I, in saying those words, I, you know, I could just, I could picture the faces of the people that I know who they're about, and it was just really ugly.
0: Yeah, uh, I. It reminds me what you just said. Kind of reminds me of when I went to go cover the uh, Milo party at the RNC, uh, and I think Ann Coulter was supposed to be hosting too, but she didn't show up. And I thought it was going to be fun and wacky and ridiculous and outrageous, and I was going to make fun of it and it was going to be a funny blog post, but the energy in that room was so fucking dark. Like I've never been in a concentrated area before with that many fucking Nazis. Uh, And by the end of it, like I almost lost my shit. Like I came home and I cried into the cat at my Airbnb. And that was just one fucking night when I didn't have to pretend to be one of them. So I can only imagine what effect it must have had on you to spend that much time with these people but back to the, um, the idea of, um, like saying slurs and this like culture as the cornerstone to the, uh, the far right politics that they're all practicing. Um, you describe the slippery slope from edgy racist humor to outright fascism. Um, what does that mean? Cause I feel like a lot of the time on the left we have a really different understanding of how people arrive at certain politics or how certain politics come to the forefront where it's not necessarily about culture first, but they seem to put a really heavy emphasis on culture. Like, what's, what's that about?
3: So the meaning of that sentence that you've pointed to, um, it's, it deals with American history. The country that we live in um, since uh, its earliest settlement um, has been founded on the differential racial caste between white and non-white people. Now, the workers in uh, colonial Jamestown uh, and all the the Virginia tobacco plants, um, the black and white workers who were toiling um, amid a high mortality rate, horrible conditions, just to make a few plantation owners rich, you know, those black and white workers had a lot more in common with each other than they did with the plantation owners. Um, and it was very much uh, to the benefit of um, the the ruling class, motherfuckers like Richard Spencer, um, to convince the white workers that they were all in one this great club together, right? And so what did they do? They offered these little incentives. Um, and that's when you begin to see the bifurcation between indentured servitude and slavery as two very distinct uh, social c- uh, categories. Uh, and ever since then... Um, There has been this great temptation uh, to anybody who can pass as white. And I'm gonna be really clear, I don't believe that there's different races of people. So what it means to be white is you can pass as white. Uh, So among anybody who can call themselves white and be accepted as white, there lurks this temptation to say, fuck the rest of these people. You know, we're gonna stick together. And you know what, maybe they're getting treated unfairly, you know, they live in this shitty part of town. You know, they're more likely to get uh, fucked with by the police. You know, they don't live as long. But you know what? Fuck them. You know, we're in this together. And you know what? Maybe they don't deserve what we have. You know, and so it's it's built in. It's not it's not just cultural. It's not it's not it's built into the very economic structure of our society, and it has been uh, since the beginning. And so when when you're in a group, and this is something that actually the dirtbag left needs to take more seriously. Um, when you're in a group of um white people and even you know let's say it's a one it's like a new york group so that yeah there's not everybody's white you know um but it's an overwhelmingly white space and people start making fucking racist jokes and we've all done it you know um you're basically you're playing with fire you're playing with a very dangerous game you are flirting with embracing nothing less than a tear in the fabric of humanity you are toying with the idea that you are a different kind of human being than other people and these are people who for the most part don't have it as good as you and whose plight you should be embracing as your own as part of one humanity
1: i was at uh work just the other day and a guy that i really respect um i obviously won't name his name um who had never said anything racist to me uh the other uh workman had uh left the area it was all white guys and uh he says um in front of everybody, kind of as an aside, he says uh, black is beautiful, brown is grand, but white is the color of the big boss man. And um, so this is a, is a real tendency to um, have this kind of in-group sort of mentality that happens. And when you talk about whiteness, it's, if you look at somebody like Dinesh D'Souza, when you're talking about passing white, he um, is able to play with these white supe- supremacist tropes, even though he is a brown Indian American immigrant some people may have grown up in some sort of liberal you know middle-class household and enclave somewhere and never had to encounter these things before what are you but looking at me for <laughs> but as he says it is poison and it is real and it is really um pernicious uh, across this country uh
2: and, and part of what was interesting about your project is that you infiltrated so many groups you saw the whole spectrum of this alt-right um including the Proud Boys, who are considered alt light and have uh, members of color and Jewish members and gay members. And you saw The Right Stuff, which is more like respectability politics, Nazism, I guess. You know, definitely very white identity politics, but a little bit more on the intellectual side. And then you saw The Daily Stormer. their slogan is like, gas the kikes, race war now. Yeah. And, uh, and they all hung out together, actually. But, uh, you know, The Proud Boys definitely try to assert that they're not Nazis, they're anti-Nazis, and they're just Western chauvinists. So is there a meaningful difference between the racism of the the har- harder alt-right groups and the alt light Western chauvinists?
3: I can't possibly speculate on the psychology of the non-white the gay members of the Proud Boys, except to say that um, whiteness is a historically malleable category. And um, there was a time when it would have been inconceivable for irish and italian and jews to join it um so maybe they're maybe they're going all in on the the off chance of you know joining the club i don't know uh but the proud boys are um they're a fascist organization There's 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 no way around it um their their conception of the west by the way is um inherently white supremacist uh the and this is some, something that they actually, where they overlap with some of the more reactionary strains of leftism. Um, the West, uh, as it's been called, is by no means um, to be equated with Europe uh, and the European countries and with Christianity. Um, the West, as we call it, you know, the um, that cultural tradition that produced um, the Renaissance and the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution, you know, for better or worse, uh, that Uh, cultural tradition was produced by vibrant uh, commerce and intellectual discourse uh, throughout Asia, the Middle East, North Africa, and the European continent for thousands of years. Um, There is nothing European uh, intrinsically about the West. Um, And so to even equate the West with Europe is in itself a white supremacist proposition. Now I will leave it to the leftists out there who embrace this uh, to think about what that means for their politics. But when you're, start, when you're talking about a right-wing politics that flirts with xenophobia, with anti-Islam, uh, with transphobia, with anti-feminism, then you're talking about a fascist politics. I mean, let's face it, you wanna talk about how great the West was, uh, the, what great the West is? What was going on um, in uh, the eighth century? Uh, where was all the math being done? Where, who, was, who was keeping uh, Plato and Aristotle uh, safe? Uh, for the European countries to rediscover um, these philosophers. You know, these are Muslim countries. You know, this is, th- th- it's a ridiculous proposition, you know. And I, I think as a, as a communist, you can't blame somebody for their ignorance. Uh, but simultaneously, um, you need to recognize how dangerous it could be.
0: So that kind of ties into another thing I was going to ask you, which is um, I've seen a lot of liberals mostly saying that there's really no there's something sort of bad or wrong even about trying to understand the taxonomy within the alt-right because they're all bad they're all racist they're all sexist they're all pieces of shit so like what difference does it make um do you think that it's useful to make any kind of distinction within the alt-right or does that only serve to somehow legitimize some of them
3: first of all social media is brain rot in the way that it trains people to argue. Um, People who spend all day uh, basically um, live streaming every thought that pops into their head via Facebook and Twitter can only think in these uh, bumper sticker slogans. Um, I've seen it a million times. Why call them all right when they're just Nazis? And, you know, uh, an answer to that probably takes more than 144 characters or whatever. Uh, But the short of it is, and this was, I think, argued... um, compellingly by matthew lyons uh, on the three-way fight blog in the aftermath of the election was that this is in fact uh, it's a new formation and it deserves to be understood on its own terms now if your interest in politics is getting laudatory likes and retweets for the righteous positions that you take in an echo chamber then yes oh why call them all right why why would you want to understand them Oh, why would you want to understand their psychology? I've heard that one too. If, if all you want to do is score points on fucking social media about how like, righteous and woke you are, there's no need to try to understand the world at all. Uh, but if you're actually trying to act deliberately and you're trying to build a movement counter to this um, homegrown, organic, and we all must admit, quite uncanny, Um, variant of uh, right-wing extremism that has grown in our country for the last few years, then you want to learn every possible thing you can about its specificities.
0: That makes a whole lot of sense. Um, I also wanted to talk a little bit about the Proud Boys as a, not only a racist group, but a misogynistic group, right? Because they are not openly racist. They're still doing that little dance about Western chauvinism. We all know it's bullshit, but That's their line. Uh, They are, however, openly sexist and misogynistic, I would say. Uh, They have a certain degree of hostile sexism. And I guess thinking about the taxonomy of the alt-right, it's almost like they've got their uh, diversity of tactics, right? because uh, say Identity Europa is not openly misogynistic. They have women in the group, but they are openly racist and white nationalist. Well, the Proud Boys uh, have no women in the group. And, you know, you see Gavin going on TV talking about uh, making very gender-essentialist arguments about how women are happier when they're in the home and they want to be dominated, blah, blah, blah.
1: Wait, you're saying we should not venerate the housewife?
0: (laughs) Yeah, right. That's that's their thing, too. And just, like, I, I understand that this is a thing that happens, but just, like, the idea that there are Proud Boys girls... Makes me want to fucking kill myself like what woman in her right mind would sign up to be a cheerleader for that but um, I guess my question for you is to what degree are the proud boys a uh, men's rights group and to what degree do people come to it through that. And is there is there overlap with like say the online incel communities?
2: And
1: I guess one more question too to loop this in is is there a kind of conveyor belt effect between these groups? You know, passing like as Jamie said from from one sort of faction of the alt right or alt light into another. I can't pretend to understand the deep
3: psychological aspects of the relationship between this fascist movement and gender and i there's a lot of women who have dealt with these motherfuckers for years on twitter um who have written a lot um trying to make sense of it um and i will i'll leave it to them um what i can say um is that in my own experience there's a darkness a deep rejection of uh this, of our society, of the, um, what we could call the status quo, but it's so much deeper than the status quo, which just is just this visceral nihilistic hatred of the world um, that is almost the default state uh, for these politics. Uh, and I wrote, tried to talk about this in my analysis of the Daily Stormer in, uh, in particular. Um, Andrew Anglin lives in an incredibly ugly, dark, nasty world. Um, it was almost redundant for him to become a Nazi. Um, it's probably the last, the last thing that he could do, you know, to separate himself, f- uh, from modernity, from the, the from contemporary life. Uh, and my concern and what, what drew me to studying these groups is that this is a generalized, um, social condition just this visceral disgust this rejection of the world that we live in um this just just um i don't know what i like but i know what i don't like and it's every motherfucking thing i see you know um and you know i've, I've i'm familiar with insurrectionary anarchism and you know um those motherfuckers have been trying for a lot of years uh to tap that vein uh, so we'll give, we'll give the devil their due in that department. Um, but what concerns me is that there's, there is no left project, um, uh, that is capable of absorbing that kind of, that just nasty fucking hatred. Uh, and this, and this is where, you know, a slick liberal might come along and say, aha, see, you know, this just proves that there's no redeeming some of these guys, you know? Uh, but I guess I you can't give up, you know, you can't, you can't give up on the class. Uh, and in the same way that I actually, I have more hope for the people who are like dropping out on like opioids and shit right now than I do for the people who are like running for office. Uh, you know, I really hope that this, like this kind of radical rejection can, can be translated into something revolutionary in a positive sense, but it's just, you know, plumbing that ugliness, you know, it's, I'll, I'll be real honest you know it's it's kind of a black pill it could be it could be endless it could it, there, there could be nothing underneath
0: yeah i i think we've all been feeling pretty cynical about the world lately between fucking bolsonaro winning in brazil um the pittsburgh shooting there was another shooting in tallahassee over the weekend it just it doesn't stop
1: the, ha- the tallahassee one as it turns out was uh, an incel Uh, I don't know if you guys saw that news. And then there was the one also last week of the uh, guy who went into a a shop or something and shot shot a couple of black people and uh, told the security guard that he doesn't kill white people. So, yes, it's been a very, very black pill week for uh, folks on the left. Yeah, Um, I wanted to because we're, we're talking about these different sort of factions within what could be amorphously called the alt right. Uh, At one point, you went to something called the New York Forum, and this might have been your most heroic uh, endeavor because you really got to the heart of darkness. Uh, This was the sort of uh, intellectual um, sort of uh, intellectual vanguard, I, I guess you could say. Of the alt-right movement. This was the leading thinkers, the people who would basically create the grand theories that would then trickle down to the more lumpen masses in in the uh, traditionalist workers' party, perhaps, right? Um, What was your impression of this um, highfalutin Nazi uh, get-together, this Vansi conference uh, in Midtown Manhattan? Have you guys ever seen the movie The Believer? No.
0: No. The movie
3: that you made? Oh, yes, the film that I produced, yes. Um, there's, uh, this is, uh, it's, it's great. It's, uh, the, the, the story is um, Ryan Gosling uh, is um, a, a young uh, Jewish man um, who is deeply um, ambivalent about the historic victimization of the Jews uh, and becomes a Nazi skinhead. And being a smart and charismatic young man, he becomes a leading Nazi, Nazi skinhead and um there's wow. actually there's a scene in um where he attends um a new york city intellectual salon uh held by uh, by this this kind of like fascist fence this fence walking fascist intellectual and it's a very accurate scene baby goose is really playing against type in that movie god
1: so what is this vanguard um, like? What, what's, if you could summarize their ideas, I guess, as the intellectual leading lights of these Nazi scum, um, how do they get together, what do they agree on, and what is their basic analysis and plan for the world? Well,
3: I mean, to be real, most of the people who attend the New York forum that I met are just about as interested in the uh, finer points of the um, Heideggerian philosophy of Greg Johnston as the average new york city left hipster who just wants to get drunk at the verso loft hey, watch yeah, yourself fuck those bad. people no offense no offense <laughs> but uh just suffice it to say that um the intellectual side needs to be taken with a grain of salt you know it's a, it's it's a political organizing project and as we know um in, even in the best of times only a small amount of the people who are attracted to extremist politics are going to be thinking very hard about the the uh, theory and the philosophy. But the what I found to be the real danger of the New York Forum it's it's a kind of cross pollination, and that's actually the that's what I found with all these groups. You know, I will note that this was a different moment. I got out before Charlottesville. What I what I saw in the alt right, both uh, you know online and in real life was this kind of um, this kind of euphoria um, that you get when you're actually when your feet are actually on the fucking ground like the way that some of us have experienced movements like Occupy Wall Street Black Lives Matter and so forth when all of a sudden the things that you're writing about and arguing about with your friends actually have truck in the real world so as as Mike Enoch uh, said um, I think very very deftly um, on on one of his podcasts, uh, in the, the months after the election, he said, "The shit that we were fighting about six months ago doesn't matter anymore. The sectarian bullshit that we used to be into, like, oh fuck this group, they're they're not pro white enough. Oh fuck this group, you know." They say he's like he's like that stuff is done. He said, "Put that shit away, you know, uh, because they they were effectively in the driver's seat." That moment that the story is set in, and in a way, you know. I mean, obviously, I wish I could have stuck around longer, but in a way, I'm glad that I captured this, just this particular moment when they actually had the wind at their backs. Um, and they were willing to set aside some, what I would consider to be some very serious differences of doctrine. You know, Jason, Jason Jordan, am I saying his name right? Uh, Richard Spencer's uh, Iranian sidekick, he was at one of the New York forums, you know, and like, i'm like hanging out with these guys from the daily Stormer book club who want to like kill everybody from the middle east you know and you would think that this this iranian guy would probably raise some hackles but whatever you know it's fine it's like we're winning right now now if you look um after after charlottesville of course they all they all went back to fucking hating each other right hmm. i've kind of i've kind of been fasting on news about these motherfuckers you know because there's only so much you can take but every once in a while i Google some of my old pals and watch, you know, um, them all, like, turning on each other, you know. Um, uh, oh, this guy's controlled opposition. position, oh, you know, this guy's secretly a Jew, you know. So, they're basically, uh, they had, they had their Occupy Wall Street and now we're, as, as we are, they're back to just hating each other, you know.
0: That makes me feel a lot better because I was starting to get a little jealous of the, uh, right unity that seemed to exist Uh, that we have maybe failed to reproduce on the left.
3: Well, that's the thing that you need to take seriously about, like, the objectivity of politics. Like, left unity is pointless if you don't have, like, a coherent project in which you can actually practice uh, left unity, right? Otherwise, it's just these pointless exercises in agreeing on abstract principles. So these these guys, you know, for years, they were spinning their wheels on these like Facebook groups and these little podcasts and message boards. And then really like the Donald Trump movement uh, provided them an opportunity to get off the internet. Um, and suddenly it was real. So like when, when, when we try to compare um, left to right, I think we can ask ourselves, you know, as, as difficult as it is um, to think about the things as analogous, like what are the political lessons that we could take away from something like uh, like the alt-right movement? Like what did they, what did they do right? Um, and how were they able to actually work effectively a small group of people like especially if you look at the content producers the people who make the podcasts and the websites a very small group of people were able to act very deliberately you know in a way that had national and international significance now i will add uh before somebody jumps all over me about this that they had something that we don't, which is, as I was saying earlier, they had the actual, the very fabric of American society was on their side. They, they had the color line on their side. You don't want to sell them short. You know, Richard Spencer, I consider to be a very, he's a serious uh, strategic thinker. Uh, Mike Enoch is a serious strategic thinker. Um, these people have been in the wilderness for a long time, uh, honing their skills. By this point, you know, they've, they've learned a lot of things by doing. They've learned basic activism by doing. They've certainly fucked up enough uh, over the last eighteen months, and you know they probably learned something from that too so these these are uh, these are real political
1: actors One more quick follow up about the New York Forum is if you look at different political movements, whether they be you know Jacobinite <laughs> you know uh, ideology out of the French Revolution, republicanism, or you look at anarchism or you look at Marxism or you look at paleoconservatism, neoliberalism there is an internally consistent worldview, right? When you went to the New York Forum and you heard their quote unquote intellectuals, right? Uh, it's not to say, that, of course, <laughs> that they are correct about things, but were they able to present as a sort of political and intellectual project some sort of message or some sort of understanding that is internally consistent and that can be moved forward in such a way that could uh create a movement that uh was based around these ideas
3: no i think that their politics are fucking swiss cheese oh great like ideologically but no that's not necessarily a good thing because you don't need i mean listen i i mean i just met you guys but i get the sense you're nerds um and i'm a nerd too uh and only nerds care about sophisticated political arguments um you really you only really need the fucking basics you know, um, to get by with most people. Um, And what what these guys have going for them is they can say, like, listen, like, um, you know, your liberal arts education has taught you that you should be, like, feel guilty about being white. We say, you don't gotta feel guilty, it's actually fucking awesome. You know, oh, somewhere in the back of your head, you know, you understand that um, a black person in the United States has faced significant obstacles that you haven't. And therefore, everything that you've earned albeit through your hard work, has been earned with an advantage that other people didn't have. You know that in the back of your head. What we're telling you is, fuck it. You deserve this advantage. You should claim this advantage. You should say it's a good, you know, Richard Spencer says, I love white privilege. It's a great thing, you know? And so I think that that's their strength, you know? Like the fucking 33rd century Star Trek theories of like, oh, this is why the Third Reich didn't work. Oh, this is the difference between Mussolini and Hitler. All the this, all this stuff that, they're, that the nerds debate on the internet, no one gives a fucking shit about that. Uh, in fact, um what was uh one of one of the points that um they debated a lot, um uh, the the newer the newer generation of the alt-right guys who were doing the the kind of the pod, the the edgy podcasts and the the really successful cultural production, there was this debate about um about Nazi imagery uh and whether it was uh productive or not. And the uh, the general takeaway among the folks that I consider to be smart and savvy was absolutely not the same way that those of us who identify as communists are really embarrassed by people waving like hammer and sickle flags and dressing up like they're off to the f- fucking to the long March, you know, um, they're really just like, they were really embarrassed by the Nazi cause players. Um, and I, I, there was a, there was a daily show episode where it was either Mike or Sven said, um, like, listen, fascism could come to the United States, but what if the flag is the American flag? Like, that'll be fine. You know, it doesn't have to be the Nazi flag. Uh, and so that kind of that kind of uh, strategic insight um, really cuts to the not just the their understanding of politics, but also the 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 larger questions don't really matter when you're telling white people that they don't have to be ashamed to be white, that they can be white, that they can embrace it and fuck everybody else.
0: Yeah, well, like you said, they're working with the status quo of this country, which, you know, they try to act like they're being all edgy or alternative or, like, I don't know, like, it's somehow cool or badass. or it's, it's like, goes back to Gavin in the early 2000s, right? Um, while, in fact, they are parroting some of the oldest status quo conservative opinions that exist in this country. So the left is always going to be at a loss when it's up against something like that. Right. Like, how do they even pretend? How do they even convince themselves that any of this is fucking edgy or punk?
3: This is where it gets complicated, uh, because. You'll notice that I identified myself as a communist in the, the story and commune is a communist publication. Um, And it was shared all over the internet uh, by liberals, um, even some conservatives, and nobody said, oh my god, I can't believe you're sharing these awful extremists, you know. There is something about ideological white supremacy that bristles against the prevailing currents of neoliberal multiculturalism. Now, this is where most of these guys would stop. And they'll probably take what I just said and just stop and put it out of context and say, aha, that cuck admitted it, you know. Um, but there, re- there is something subversive about ideological white supremacy, ideological anti-Semitism in the face of a very particular form of capitalism. Uh, it's the, the Hillary Clinton wing of the Democratic Party, the Barack Obama wing, this... Um, the inner like the kind of internationalist outward looking cosmopolitan oh my god they're gonna love this this cosmopolitan um the, i mean the ruling class um has you know the 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 forward thinking um global thinking um you know the kind of like the real hard-hitting neoliberals um who have no use for racist ideology um they haven't what you know they have no use for um ideological white supremacy they have no use for sexism you know as an ideological form now do they benefit from paying women less than men yes do they benefit from paying black people less than white people yes you know are they happy to support policing that uh terrorizes young men of color yes they support all that stuff but when you when it comes to saying the words they don't want to hear it right um this is the this is the most this is the most sophisticated forward-thinking uh wing of the ruling class and interestingly enough, when these guys are complaining about the Jews, this is basically what they're talking about. Let's face it. Socialism is, a, or anti-Semitism is a socialism for 80.
1: um August Bebel, everybody. Shout out, friend of the show.
3: Yeah, and so, like, um, what you what you saw with Trump um, was, you know, Trump is kind of like the king of what, what you could call, like, the cockroach capitalists, you know? No class consciousness, no forward thinking, he would fucking, he would fuck over every other capitalist you know just to advance his own agenda and then he would fuck himself in the end you know he's on a suicide mission you know and those are the kinds of ruling class motherfuckers who really want to kick up the dirt with the anti-semitism and all the other stuff the real like the the real top shelf globalists are uh, they 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 don't want to hear the bad words you know they want to benefit from the from the the enduring legacy of structural racism, but if you use one of those words, you're going to get fired from their company so fucking fast. There's no N-words on the slopes of Davos.
0: So frustrating, right? Like, we talked about this on our Conspiracy Theories episode, too, because at least, maybe not on a conscious level, but at least some of these people seem to be grappling with the effects of globalization, right? With the effects of fighting over... Pieces of a pie that is very Clearly shrinking um, I don't want to use the catchphrase zero sum Game because that's a catchphrase from another Show but uh, you all Know what I'm talking about the at this price point is right. Yes exactly um, And it's like the age Old debate well since 2016 and and before That it feels a lo- like a whole A age. lot of people yeah. A lot of people only started having it in 2016 right uh, 2016 Is there years any ago? way To to get people from that uh, kind of right populist, vulgar critique that might be uh, racist, anti-Semitic, conspiracy theory, bullshit-laden, et cetera, et cetera, to a more left populist uh, angle? Or is that just like like Bernie would've won, et cetera, et cetera? Or is that just like wishful thinking on the part of, um, I don't know, fools, people who are insulated by privilege uh, and Jimmy Dore?
3: Well, first of all, uh and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, Bernie would have won. That's a very interesting question, and it cuts to the the heart of how we understand politics. Now, if you think that politics is arguing with people online to change their minds while your friends cheer you on and their friends cheer them on, then no, you're never going to change these motherfuckers' minds. Uh, But I think that history tells us that's not actually how politics functions. Politics is what happens when people with a common stake in their lives get together and they do things now they could be bad and they could be good now i think that the only chance that we have actually of building some kind of egalitarian movement that could turn the tide uh, against this rightward turn is finding real concrete projects where people could actually work together to advance their common interests uh, and i know this sounds this sounds abstract but it's i mean it's really not you know i mean most of us uh, i don't know about your listeners but most of us have to work in jobs uh most of us live in at least in this city live in buildings that we don't own and units that we don't own um use public services that uh that are getting ever ever more uh dilapidated uh, as this the city is over policed and you'll notice my new york city examples uh lie the you know the poverty of political approach that only comes from cities but you understand the point. It's only through uh, mass act, mass participatory actions that people's politics can change on a mass scale. I think it's really foolish and self-indulgent for people to imagine you know lecturing somebody or hectoring someone or um, just badgering them with these talking points, uh, until they change their minds, um, you know. I I recently saw this bumper sticker for that um, one of these white ally groups. You know, the the left wing of white nationalism, um, white allyship, um, and it was called "Undoing Racism." Uh, that's one of their groups, and it said "Undoing Racism One Semester at a Time." And I said, "Oh, what what blistering parody! Oh, who made that? This is Swiftian satire." Uh, and it turns out it was actually they made it. It's their, their. It's theirs. They didn't. That's not a joke. But that's that's actually like that. Okay, we could say that that's the position that we can reject. The idea that we're undoing racism one semester at a time.
0: Oh my god. That's that's about as bad as when I saw the guy chanting, uh, "Hillary twenty twenty run again." Hillary's a real progressive at Aussie Fest, and I thought he was like some irony bro, but he was for real. So in the article you write, and I quote. The real threat today is not that small pockets of white supremacist ideologues exist, it's that their vision of society might become the only one that makes sense to ordinary white people for whom reality increasingly seems like a battle between racially defined interest groups for slivers of a shrinking pie. But uh, as you said, most of these people and most of the people who voted for Trump are not necessarily poor or um, any colloquial understanding of the term working class, I realize, that has a lot of different meanings. But most of these people are not struggling. Um, They don't experience economic stress by any rational metric that we can measure. So how do you square that circle? Because I know this comes up a lot when we're talking about um, the economic causes for the rise of Trump.
3: I think it's important to make a distinction between this question as it relates to individual psychology and as it relates to politics. I don't think that economic insecurity explains the racial chauvinism of every single person in the United States. Uh, there are people running around who believe all kinds of wacky shit. You know, there's people who believe the earth is flat. Um, there, You know, there's um, there's also people like um, the ruling class motherfuckers, you know, the Trumps of the world, who actually benefit materially from um, sowing... Um, you know dissension between racially defined groups uh so i don't think that we need to explain the racial chauvinism of every single person using economic insecurity what this and i hate to even use the term because it's like this football and these really dumb debates between race, uh, racial reductionists and class reductionists but nonetheless um the the idea is that There'll always be people running around saying all kinds of outlandish shit about the nature of reality. And it's only in certain material situations uh, where these ideas actually get traction. Uh, now, uh, as Leonard Zeskind, who I, I mentioned um, in the article, he's a, he's a, a scholar of uh, the white nationalist movement in the United States uh, going back to the mid-20th century. Leonard Szekin argues that there will always be—I forget his exact figure—like maybe like a hundred thousand people running around in the United States saying that, oh, white people are the master race, and we got to get rid of the Jews, you know, um, and that's just something that's that's invariant. Uh, now, what we need to look out for are the moments when that those ideas um, are the only ones that make sense to people, um, and those are, those are the moments when uh, class struggle uh, across the the divide of race uh, seems impossible now if you look at u.s history um the way that u.s history uh post uh, civil war is often narrated by leftists uh and for good reason is um so the civil war uh ended slavery and so then in response the south instituted jim crow jim crow actually um in its most sophisticated form didn't materialize uh, until um, the 19 teens. Uh, and as you know the civil war um, was over in the 1860s slavery was abolished in 1862 and there's a lot of history that happened in between those two things that's not to say that there wasn't organized uh, repression against the freedom of, um, of black people in the south it wasn't to say that we didn't have uh, convict leasing uh, take the place of slavery in some cases, but um, there was you know, the incredible political experiment of reconstruction, you know, what Du Bois called the dictatorship of the proletariat. There was the populist movement, um, which you know, despite um, eventually succumbing uh, to white chauvinism uh, for a time offered the tantalizing possibility of um, multiracial class struggle between poor farmers um, in rural America uh, and these are these are moments when it was by no means obvious that uh, the color line should triumph, um, and I think that if we if we keep in mind that it's not necessary that people will resort to these these nasty views to this chauvinism, it's it's a latent possibility. It's baited by the structure of our society. It's it's encouraged, um, but it's it's not necessary. And. If, you know, as the, as the saying goes, if another world is truly possible, um, and if people can see it, if people can participate in activities that make them feel like another world is possible, just think about everything that you gain from your friendships with people who aren't white, who aren't white men, who are Jewish, you know, who are from different cultures and from different countries. It's just so, it's so beautiful. It's so, on, it's so wonderful to, to, to have so many different people in your life and to be able to work together and play each other's music and eat each other's food and you know and benefit from this vibrant global discourse that's been going on for thousands of years, you know, it's it's just a much more beautiful way to be. Uh, and if if people can if people could have the possibility to live, um, you know, in in a dignified way, in a way where their their needs are met and they can respect themselves and they don't have to always work shitty jobs they don't care about you know and they can do so in harmony with people from different backgrounds and it's by no means a necessity that they'll fall back on this white chauvinist bullshit
1: so you're saying the um, solution to white supremacy is full communism yes so let's um,
2: go back to the article and how how, uh, it's been received and uh, what happened to some of the people that you mentioned there's a few interesting characters in the story that maybe we can follow up with. Uh, one was a a tarot reader from Bushwick who was complaining that he got fired by Antifa. Another was a guy named uh, Paul Schmeider and there's an article in the Daily News that the DMV recalled his license plate, which was GTK RWN, which stands for Gas the Ki- Kikes Race War Now. Uh, he's not going to have that license plate anymore. And a lot of people online are saying. Uh, that they're going to boycott the bars that these people met up in. Uh, do you think that this is a uh, good strategy? Removing license plates and boycotting bars.
3: I mean, it's it's cool. I I appreciate that the story has been kind of organically fact checked, because the suddenly barcade tweets, oh yeah, well, these guys actually were here. I said, oh thanks, barcade. Uh, so the DMV says, oh yeah, this is a real license plate. So thank you, DMV. You know. Um, you know, I'm, I'm glad that Nazis are getting fucked with. You know, um, as for the bar thing, I have to say, that's just so stupid. Um, one of the biggest challenges that we face, you know, doing political work in the moment uh, that we're in is that uh, most people in our age group, assuming we're all the same age, uh, can only understand their political agency in terms of consumption. And so you see this um, even when people try to move off of giving their opinions on social media and writing letters to their congressmen and shit and and try to enter into movement spaces and try to do organizing they tend to talk about um political projects uh and political movements like they're reviewing like a restaurant on yelp or something it's like oh I showed up and nobody smiled at me and I felt really alienated and I would be more inclined to support you if you did X, Y, and Z. You know, discussing this thing as if you have no role in it, you know, you're just a passive consumer of politics. The bar thing is, like, do, have you guys read the fucking story? The NYPD was, a, it was an escort for the this, like, Proud Boys march where they're shouting, you know, build the wall and, like, fucking all this, like, chauvinist shit and, like, they're, they're, they're looking for Antifa to fight, you know, and it's like, um, th- so you're mad at you're mad at the bars. Uh, I have to say, bar- Barcade did nothing wrong. Uh, and you know, I shouldn't I shouldn't um, say this because it's not it's not official. But I heard from a reliable source today that uh, bark in order to you know make amends, Barcade will actually be hosting a, a Wolfenstein tournament at their Brooklyn location, and all proceeds will go to Commune Magazine. <laughs> Oh, that's intrigued. a jewish video game
0: right The uh, wolfie <laughs> wolfenstein three D.
3: they did their right. homework well first they gave money to the adl but it turned out the adl wasn't very woke <laughs> <laughs> so this is their sec- this is their second try and i think they really got it this time oh <laughs> yeah
2: well unfortunately the games at barcade are 25 cents so i don't know if kami is gonna see too much of that <laughs> um oh yeah so closing it out with you jay thanks so much for talking to us I couldn't help but notice the title of this piece was a little bit dry, and I, I was wondering if you had any nixed titles.
3: When I first approached him with the story, I said, um, You know, it's an infiltration classic. You know, um, <laughs> it's like um, you know, an English hooligan classic, uh, Among the Thugs. I'm calling it Among the Cucks. I <laughs> <laughs> said, Okay, fine. So it's a, it's a, I'm infiltrating a, um, a, a reactionary space. You know, I'm posing as one of them. Uh, you know, Ted Conover's classic um, prison guard memoir, New Jack, only it's new cuck. <laughs> so I said, oh, maybe it's a new, maybe it lies in like a New York City, like a classic New York City movie.
0: Cucks of New York. Oh, that's <laughs> good. All right. Wow, they should let me write the titles. Yeah.
3: I wish I had had you with me. Yeah. <laughs> so I said, okay, fine. Uh, how about uh, the cucking of Pelham one, two, three. <laughs>
1: Proud Boy Interrupted. (laughs) (laughs) These Uh, are
0: all so good.
1: On that uh, stellar note, (laughs) thank you, Jay Firestone, for coming on the show.
0: Yeah, uh, Uh, you could stick around for our next discussion if you want to. I think we're going to talk about some anti-fascist tactics, yeah?
1: So I I also have an
2: essay coming out this week in Commune Magazine about anti-fascism and, uh, you know, how it's evolved in the last couple of years and how it's been criticized primarily uh, by other revolutionary socialists. You don't really talk so much about Antifa in the article, um, but do you have any recommendations for anti-fascists based on your experience, like how can we fight people? Is it through exposing them, imposing a social cost for being a Nazi, um, literally showing up and fighting them in the streets? Uh, What do you think would
3: work? I'm a firm believer in a diversity of tactics. And I know usually that's just something that anarchists say to get liberals to knock all the cops on them. But in this case, it's actually true. Um, I think that if you're, if you're willing to show up and, um, and fight uh, and put yourself on the line like that, that's great. And that actually keeps a lot of people from, going, uh, from showing up in the streets. The idea, Whether or not somebody is going to punch you in the face is actually a big difference. That keeps a lot of people behind the keyboard and uh, out of the streets. I guess I would really just add to that, like, there's a there's a way that the uh, aesthetics of anti-fascism can get ahead of the actual practical acumen. Uh, if you show up, like, dressed up like a ninja, saying you want to throw down, please be ready to throw down. I mean, I don't want to be macho about this, but, like, um, there's this kind of divide among, like, far-leftists uh, between people who understand... Uh, the battle the the battles that we have with
1: fascists in tactical terms um and those who still understand
3: this stuff is like in moral terms
1: except that the uh reality of the situation as anybody knows is if you've been in at least one fight you've probably lost a fight and that's part of fighting so you have to be prepared for that
3: yeah and you don't what you don't do i've gotten beat up plenty of times you know you get some vitamin e you put it on your eye the black guy goes away you stay in your house for a week um you don't let anybody know you got beat up um you know the last thing you do is you go home take pictures send it out to everybody and say hey everybody uh if you're looking for an easy fight come find me at the next demo i'm so i'm not trying to talk shit let's be real let's be let's be tactical here show up prepared um now uh, there's a lot of people listening right now probably like oh you're you're being macho you know no what i'm saying is there's a there's a role for everybody like uh i think that a lot of people could probably do the kind of work that i did uh, I mean, it, it, it took a little bit of courage, but for the most part, it just took a, a cool-headed appraisal of, um, of the situation, of the social dynamics. Uh, uh, if there are any women listening uh, who could hold their nose um, and enter into one of these scenes, uh, you could get a lot of phone numbers uh, from these guys. Uh, and what a lot of these guys don't realize is when you give somebody your phone number, you are telling them a lot more about yourself than you might realize thanks to the software that enables you to look up pretty much every conceivable fact about somebody based on their phone number. Uh, and so there's a lot of things that you can do besides showing up and fighting. Um, you, can, you can write articles like the one that I wrote. Um, you can publicize the existence of, of these meetings. And uh, someone who I uh, haven't mentioned, who's fantastic, who I've never met, is um, Darryl Lamont Jenkins, who runs One People's Project. Um, I think he has the dubious distinction of being the person who revealed Richard Spencer to the world. At a time when Richard Spencer was happily uh, working anonymously on the fringes of mainstream conservatism um, Daryl um is a is a very is a very large and confident man who goes uh, and gets in the faces of these of these guys at their demos. He puts a camera in their face and he says smile you know i'm going to put you on I'm going to put you on the internet um, and he has caused uh, considerable havoc for a lot of these folks in There's
2: fact this one great video where he goes he, the, a bunch of like identity Europa people are infiltrating like a normie Trump protest and they're all talking about free speech. And he asked the identity Europa guys like, Hey, what do you guys think about free speech? And I was like, uh, yeah, I don't believe in free speech. <laughs> <laughs>
3: oh, he's great. I, there was a video where he argues with this guy about whether Kekistan is a real place <laughs> and he just doesn't back down. Cause it's not, it's not the truth was on his side. <laughs> but, but so, um, I, I actually was at one of these, um, one of these hangouts, um, where there were some some older guys from the Council of Conservative Citizens, and I swear, I you know you'll probably think I'm making this up, but they had they had f- looked up Daryl Lamont Jenkins's traffic record, um, and they were they were so happy. They said, "Oh, he wants to tell people what they should be doing politically. Look at this. Look at all of his parking tickets." <laughs> sorry, to, sorry to reveal that, Daryl, that you're parking tickets, but <laughs> That's
0: just as bad as being a Nazi doxed. Such a
3: classic Republican move. <laughs> yeah. But so they were like, they were smarting. And, you know, I don't think that he had had any interaction with these with these guys in years because there wasn't even anything on his side about any of them. Uh, and it, it just goes to show that, um, that just uh, shining light on this stuff uh, can really help in any way that you can do it. You don't have to be a big street fighting hero. And to be completely honest, you know, just so I'm clear about the street fighting stuff, there's a role for it. But also... Um, there's a, there's an aspect where, uh, you can contribute to somebody's adventure, somebody's Mm -hmm. like right wing adventure.
0: Yeah. That ties into another thing I was going to ask you, which is sort of a devil's advocate. Well, it's not devil's advocate for them, but there's a position out there that says these people thrive on pissing us off. They thrive on fighting with us and they thrive on attention. So if we just ignore them, we deny them attention. We deny them media coverage. We deny them people to fight with in the streets. Um, that will deprive them of their power, and they'll just—I don't know—wither away. Like, what's your read on that?
3: This is a great example of Twitter thinking. This is a this would be a really good point to make in a particular political context. For instance, um, last week, um, Milo. Remember him? Uh, the good old the, the good old. The- yeah, he seems so tame now. Um, but Milo, um, <clears throat> he was at he was at NYU with this guy Michael Rechtenwald. It was a real, real bottom of the barrel um, All light per- personalities. And so I believe that in that context, like if if you had gone and mobilized against that and messed up and risked arrest to stop that clown show, then you probably would have been doing more harm than good because the whole point of it was to. Provoke um, some kind of response. Like the in, when when Milo comes to town, the left is the show, um, at least at least since his fall from grace. Um, and so I think that we need to be we need to be uh, tactical about how we approach this. You know, let's say let's say if, alternatively, there's a really important political conference in town. Let's say if, hypothetically speaking, somebody does the same thing as I did and finds out when the next New York Forum is going to be. And there's going to be all these people from all over the, you know, the tri-state area coming in. I mean, I think it would certainly be strategic to have some kind of um, interruption make these gatherings more difficult to have. And these are, these are serious gatherings. This is not like the Milo fucking clown show where the left provides the, the headline. And so I, I, I really think that we need to resist the urge to think uh, like about the strategic and tactical uh, response to these guys in like 144 characters because it's a lot more complicated and there, there are fucking enemies in an ever evolving
1: uh, battlefield. So on exactly that topic you were talking about, about this kind of dynamic interplay between these forces and our forces, in a sense, antifa, right, I put that in quotes, but anti-fascist action is a, um, is a reactive activity, right? So the fascists, in a particular historical instance, they rise and we confront them to stop them from rising more, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, how does and how might this sort of reactive practice to the rise of the fascists relate to the more proactive activity of building real class power?
3: Well, it gets to the issue of why are we fighting them at all? Um, I mean, th- and this is why I'm not a white ally. I'm fighting these people. Are these people are my enemy? You know, these people are the enemies of the working class. They're trying to split humanity. They're trying to split the working class. Um, they're trying to defeat um, our movement for human liberation. That's why we fight them. We don't fight them because we're they're oh they're mean to black people and we're we got we're the white knights who have black people's backs. You know, we're all in this shit together. You know, these are our fucking enemies. You know, and I think that anti-fascism without communism is just liberalism. You know, um, and I mean that's fine. You know, I know. There's some folks listening who probably just said, "So what?" You know, I don't want to get put in a gas chamber. You know, and that's fu- that's that's a valid point. Um, you know, uh, but I think if if we're actually thinking uh, about what we're for and not just what we're against, um, there needs to be a working class program on the table, or else these motherfuckers are going to provide one, and it's going to be terrible. It's going to smoke us. You know, and this is this is where um, the need to to uh, edge out the neoliberals to defeat the the Clintonites, you know, actually becomes real. And I know, I know you guys might have some things to say about this um, this election that's coming up. It's not really my thing, but like, I'm sympathetic um, to the the folks who are who are fighting it out with these these Clinton-bought pieces of shit um, who say, "Oh, we, uh, America's already great." You know, um, anybody who has that message needs needs to get uh, sent on an ice flow, You know, as a
1: necessary first step. <laughs> Nobody could see it because this is an audio show, but when you said that there's no anti-fascism without communism, I definitely did a fist pump in the air. Just just so folks uh, know. I witnessed the fist pump. Yeah, <laughs> I
0: mean, I guess I could ask I mean I could ask a follow-up question on that because I feel like a lot of people still don't understand why you can only fight fascism with communism. Because they look at communists and then they look at liberals, and they think that liberals are much more pragmatic shall we say uh, opposition party because they view most things in electoral terms to the rising far right and they might even be sympathetic to our cause but they're gonna say hey we're a lot farther from communism than we are from liberalism why don't we defeat the uh greater threat first before we can talk about that
3: capitalism produces fascism you know, fascism is the decaying uh, form that capitalism takes uh, when the ruling class decides to dispense with the niceties and hold on to its power by any means necessary. Uh, to the extent that liberals are willing to defend the state, um, they will, you know, either throw in their lot um, with the state in whatever form it takes, or they'll get marginalized. Um, there's no liberal response to fascism, uh, I don't, historically speaking. Uh, besides you know, Well,
2: sometimes they put them into power.
3: Oh yeah, no. That sometimes they're nice and they're nice enough to put them into power, um, and I think that actually, like, I don't want to be too hard on my readers, uh, but I think the folks who are angrier about Barcade than they are about the NYPD uh, supporting the Proud Boys need to ask themselves what's going on with their own politics, uh, because this is like a very, this is a very serious thing that's going on, um, even in wonderful multicultural New York City where the. You know, you hear a lot of people on the left say, like, oh, I'm a part of a majority people of color organization. It's like, yeah, so are the cops. Um, You know, and so, like, uh, I think you you really need to take seriously the fact that if you're willing to throw in your lot with the state, if you're willing to choose the state rather than the mystery door of communist revolution, then you will inevitably be throwing your lot in with fascism when the time comes.
0: That makes a whole lot of sense. Uh, I think some of our more, shall we say... Left liberal listeners might find that a bitter pill to swallow, but we're all about expanding minds and challenging perspectives here at the Antifada. And
1: depending on your perspective, it's either a black pill or a red pill.
0: As much as Trump is a product of the uh, forces of rising right wing authoritarianism around the world and not the cause of them. I think there is certainly a bit of a feedback effect. Right. Like a lot of these groups feel very empowered to have their man in the White House. And now we've gotten to a point where no matter what happens in these midterms, you know, if the Democrats win, there's going to be a backlash. If the Republicans win, they're going to be even more empowered to uh, do their thing. Um, like Sam said on the TV the other night, uh, you can't vote your way out of this. Voting's not going to cut it. Um, I do think people should vote still uh, for whatever it might do i realize that makes me the centrist of the crew here but um we love
1: you anyways
0: (laughs) but uh yeah like in the most immediate sense this is the opposition party to these like rising shitty forces so on the one hand i know liberal democracy is what gives a with what gives us fascism because it arises from uh, capitalism and decay. Um, and elections are not ever going to be even close to the whole answer. But on the other hand, I don't want to see open white nationalists like Steve King win elections. So like, how do you square that circle? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you guys as like the, the person who is the least anti-electoral on this show, uh, although I realize that is a low bar.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a really hard question. And I, I know that you and the other majority or poor people have been kind of going around with this a lot. And uh, I mean, the commonest perspective is that social democracy anesthetizes and uh, disarms sometimes literally the uh, revolutionary elements of the working class. So, in a situation like in, in Chile, um, was there anything Allende could have done within the bounds of liberal democracy without creating a dictatorship of the proletariat? And was there anything he could have done to prevent that coup? You know, Apparently he went to the Soviet Union and asked them, and the Soviet Union was just like, you're fucked, man. <laughs> there's gonna be a coup and there's nothing we, even we can do about Wasn't it.
1: Wasn't Castro trying to uh, convince him to arm the workers?
2: Yeah, but okay, so even if he did arm those militias, arm the Mir, and uh, even if he didn't disarm them, would they have been able to fight the military? We you know, we don't know, this is what happened. But there's a lot of instances, uh, and this is uh, where Davé's critique of anti-fascism in the uh, essay, When Insurrections Die, comes in. The like, revolutionary socialist answer is, you have to have an independent class party capable of having a revolution, And nothing short of that is gonna prevent fascism. It doesn't mean don't vote strategically. It doesn't take that much time to vote. Well, there's no real reason not to. Democracy is not gonna stop us from, save us from fascism. And that's more obvious now than ever.
1: Yeah, I'd say 100%. I mean, I'm with you guys. Um, If you're in a non-voter suppressor state, it probably doesn't take too much time or effort to go and pull that lever or whatever. But, you know, for the Left liberals out there, for the progressives out there, um, I'm sorry if I'm, uh, I don't know, caricaturing you, right? But it seems like most of the rhetoric in the, rhetoric in this country around elections is about you pull a lever, you know, every two to four years, and then you can drop out because you've kind of done your work. By the time this podcast arrives on Wednesday, uh, we will probably know, we will definitely know. I think the results of what the midterms were, whether the dems dems managed to do what uh recent history has shown us and uh screw the pooch and fuck it all up again or whether they take the house and the senate yes, but
0: i'm betting on the former just yeah, for the record I, I
1: mean it's hell world now always so, bet on hell world so, I mean, people if 2016 is any indication um we have no fucking idea what's going to happen but um Regardless of the outcomes, right, unlike people who are tied to electoralism as the one way in which we change society, we on the left do not have that luxury. You know, as uh, Jay Firestone came on earlier and talked about pushing against the grain as opposed to these right-wing forces who are pulling with the grain of a white supremacist society, we on the socialist, anarchist, and communist left don't have that luxury to wait. And as soon as these midterms happen, right, We need to start redoubling our efforts. If the right wing wins, if the Republicans win, um, we're not accelerationists. We don't think that's a good thing, right?
0: Yeah, we're not telling you to vote for Republicans to do an accelerationist plan.
1: But whether the Republicans win or whether the Democrats win, we must redouble our efforts, right? Because we don't think on scales of two-year election cycles or four-year election cycles, right? We on the left need to be thinking in terms of 5, 10, 20 years in the future and building the class power necessary in order to dispense with this whole fucking illusion and carnival of bourgeois democracy as it exists, right?
0: Hell yeah, we're on a pretty short time limit and uh, that's, I hate to keep plugging the DSA, but this is one thing I like about the DSA. We acknowledge that, you know what, even though our system of bourgeois democracy might not be terribly legitimate, uh, as Matt Crispin said recently on Chapo, uh, most people think it is, so we need to have at least some kind of hand in the game, maybe a finger in the pie, I don't know how to say that, but that should not be most of what we do, it shouldn't even be half of what we do, right, it should be like fucking 10% of what we do, while at the same time we are, I would, I would view our electoral campaigns kind of like a loss leader, Right, like the cheap fruit outside of Mr. Kiwi, everyone's like, "Ooh, this <laughs> looks is good." That is a very topical and, then and you geographical go in reference. Before thing, you know, uh, well, okay, fair enough, fair <laughs> enough. Move on. It's the cheap fruit outside of a, a very successful chain of Korean-run uh, fancy bodegas. So you know they've got the dollar fruit outside. It looks great. Before you know it, you're buying a ten-dollar smoothie. You're putting spirulina in there that's what we want for people who join the DSA. So they come in through the electoral shit and then they do all kinds of other stuff. What are the things we can do in hell world? Um, I don't know. Sean and I were in the car on the way back from upstate today on the way to this, uh, episode recording. And we came up with a few ideas for you. And since I know Sean is very excited to play us out with some rousing calls to action, I'm going to throw it to him.
1: Listen folks. If the right wing wins in this election or if the neoliberals win in this election, we will still be facing massive fucking attacks on everything that we on the left hold dear. Okay, that's left in this neoliberal hell world. All right. There's a lot of things we can do in either of those cases. The first thing we can do is log the fuck off and get off into the real world. Jay had mentioned earlier in this, you know, Twitter fights. That's not politics. Okay, Mm -hmm. Other things, too, Mm -hmm. is that it's. You know, the the center left and the far right want to criminalize protest when they want you to go into that fucking free speech pen. They want you to have an A to B march. Don't do that. A to B march. All right. Do what the IWW and other folks did in the past and pack those fucking jails. All right. If you are dealing with a situation where, because of this real estate bubble, you can't fucking afford to live in your neighborhood anymore, start fucking tenant unions, start fucking councils in your neighborhood, all right? If the police, and this is only going to get fucking worse either which way, if the carceral state keeps coming into your fucking neighborhood and harassing, beating, and killing your fucking people, start to create neighborhood watches, all right, against those fucking police, all right? If... ICE is going to continue to go from neighborhood to neighborhood and city to city and take away working class comrades of ours and send them abroad or throw them in jail. All right. We need to see more airport protests. You need to start providing sanctuary to your neighbors. And if you have any fucking privilege as an American citizen, use that fucking privilege in order to defend the people that have the least of that all right the other thing that they want they want to do right now especially the right wing but the neoliberals are letting this go too is they want to get rid of women's reproductive rights you're going to see with this Kavanaugh court the potential that Roe versus Wade is overturned all right why is it that we need to work within this legal framework where Roe versus Wade as a judicial decision makes that a right for women to choose what to do with their bodies if we have to create underground mutual aid networks for women's health right that's something we need to fucking do whether that's legal or illegal all right and then finally when it comes to this Janus decision and what the right wing wants to do to destroy the what seven or eight percent left of the uh, sector in the united states that's unionized right as i said in the Janus episode it is no longer a option for us as working class people to work within the regime of the national labor relations act and the taft harley act we must begin the thinking, and imagining that these rules, right, that these laws that govern our behavior in the workplace and in the streets no longer exist. Because that's what's got us our rights in the past. That's what's going to get us our rights in the future. So sure, go out. Fucking put a vote out there. Pull that fucking lever. More power to you. It's fucking great. But at the end of the day, we need to be ready in this moment, in this era, to start saying, Fuck it. If it's illegal, but it's the right thing to do, and it's going to build class power, we fucking do it.
0: Dead, dead it. ass. We call
3: him Skin, Secret Agent Skin. 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 There's a man who fears no danger. There's a man who fears no war. He's the man who fight for freedom. He's the man who'll save the world. He's the guy who's on a mission. He's the guy who's got the gun.
1: Top secret mission, a top secret man. I am that man on that mission. Code game S-K-I-N, the secret agent skin. Secret agent skin.